Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, a very special guest. His name is James Higdon, H-I-G-D-O-N. And back in 2012, he wrote a very thorough book about the marijuana trade in Kentucky. The title of the book is The Cornbread Mafia, A Homegrown Syndicate's Code of Silence and the Biggest Marijuana Bust in American History. It was published 2012. Jim Higdon is a native of Lebanon, Kentucky, an area that we're going to talk about. He holds degrees from Center College, Brown University, and Columbia University. And this book led to a journalism career covering Kentucky for the Washington Post and cannabis policy for Politico. Jim used his expertise in the hemp industry to make cornbread hemp a tangible CBD business with the best farmers in Kentucky. And his website is www cornbreadhemp.com, all one word. And I'll put something in the show notes too uh, that has some of the products that he's promoting, which are full spectrum CBD gummies. But we're going to talk about this book. It has like over 500 five-star reviews on Amazon. So people love this book. Really fascinating. I learned a lot. I really didn't know much. About, I'm from living in California. So I didn't know about kind of this kind of really interesting element of Kentucky, but he can talk more about that. So Jim, Higdon, are you there? Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard this book or your background, can you talk about like what it was like growing up in that area and the kind of topography and what led you to write this book, The Cornbread Mafia? Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I grew up with this story. It was a story that um, was very large in, in my young life. Um, small rural community in central Kentucky, about an hour south of Louisville. And when I was in middle school, um, parents of my classmates started going to prison. And at first it was something difficult to understand exactly why and for what. Um, some of my classmates would tell their classmates that their dad was at college um, when they had, you know, two four-year prison sentences. Um, and it took a while to kind of figure out that wasn't the that wasn't true. It was this sort of, you know, vague, scary uh, thing that was kind of hanging over the town. And then in the summer of 1989, uh, federal prosecutors in Louisville held a press conference and revealed that 70 men from my community had been arrested over the course of the past five years uh, from 1985 to 1989. Um, 70 men arrested on 30 farms in 10 states with what law enforcement said was 200 tons of marijuana in what federal prosecutors said was the largest domestic marijuana syndicate in American history, and that this syndicate referred to itself as the Cornbread Mafia. And when that press conference happened in the summer of 89, uh, it sort of set off a, a media uh, bomb in my community, um, and uh, journalists and news vans were coming down looking for all these people who had supposedly been arrested. The news had mischaracterized the press conference in a way uh, that made it seem like these 70 men had been arrested all at once instead of over the course of a period of time. Uh, and it just led to um, sort of a a traumatic event in my community. It, it rattled uh, the adults and the, the people that uh, were supposed to know what was going on. And at first, um, uh, people blamed these men who had been arrested, and and slowly that um, animosity turned towards the federal government and the media for mischaracterizing our community. And it's something that I always just kept with me, and I knew it was a story that was important. And I went off to school to be a writer, uh, wanted to 
write a book as a, you know, as a, a, as a mature author. And this story was sitting there that no one had talked about for 20 years uh, of these 70 guys that were arrested. None of them talked in exchange for a lesser sentence. None of them cooperated with a federal investigation, which is why prosecutors held a press conference instead of, uh, running a, a RICO case or a continuous criminal enterprise case against these guys, because of these 70 men they had uh, on the hook, none of them would become a witness to point a finger, um, which is the piece they needed for uh, an organized crime prosecution. So without uh, that key ingredient for the, for, for a massive um, RICO case, they uh, um, just held a press conference and and that kind of you know set the course for um um me writing this book 20 years later right so pretty remarkable so the c you called it the cee statute could not be applied because nobody could establish connections based upon this culture of silence but that culture of omerta you mentioned the word in your book it didn't come out it just appear in 1989 it's something to do with the, the history of that area, that peculiar kind of subzone in Kentucky that grew up into the marijuana industry. Can you talk about the background, the kind of history? You have a great sections that don't even deal with marijuana, but just deal with the history of that area and how unique it really was, kind of like Lebanon in that area. Sure thing. Um, one of the things that struck me, so I grew up Catholic in this rural community. Catholic rural Kentucky is not you know, rural Kentucky is not a place that most people associate with Catholicism, but there's this strain, this uh, of of um, established Catholic culture uh, in Louisville, and then going south in Louisville for for a while until we get to Lebanon, where I'm from. Um, there's convents and monasteries uh, all through that area. Uh, uh, the Sisters of Loretto, uh, Dominicans, uh, and then the Abbey of Gethsemane, the Trappist Monastery, that's quite famous where uh, Thomas Merton uh, lived his life uh, as a Trappist monk, um, are all right there in the same sort of central Kentucky area. Everyone's um, predominantly Catholic in that area. And of these 70 guys that were arrested in association with the Cornbread Mafia, all but one of them were Catholic. So in and part of my investigation as I dug into the story is like, okay, why did none of them talk? And what did Catholicism have to do with it? And I knew that this is a question I was digging into, but I genuinely had no idea what the answer was until I started looking through uh, my hometown newspaper's archives for the 13 years of prohibition from 1919 to 1933. And I found this remarkable parallel um, the headlines in the 80s during the marijuana busts uh, were mirrored almost exactly throughout the 20s, um, just replacing marijuana with with moonshine still. Uh, the same family names, the same areas, uh, uh, federal agents raiding these communities, busting up moonshine stills. Because in 1919, before Prohibition takes effect, uh, Marion County, where I'm from, where Lebanon is, uh, had nine active distilleries. We're talking about a, a community of today is 20,000 people in the whole county. So nine distilleries in a county of, you know, 10, 15,000 people is a lot of employers. And all of these men were Catholic men uh, who literally had a dozen children each. And they were forced in this moment of prohibition taking effect, they could either uh, obey the law and allow their kids to go hungry, or they could break the law and feed their families. And so there, there, there grew this notion in my community that a person could break a man's law 
uh, without violating God's law, could remain a member of their community, could uh, remain a member of their church while still being uh, an outlaw in the eyes of the government. And and that two generations later uh, becomes the same families when these guys go off to the Vietnam War and come home with a knowledge of what marijuana is and its value in other places. Um, they kind of tap right into the same culture of um, outlawism that developed during prohibition in this Catholic region and just went right back at it. But all, all right. they had to do was grow it and not get caught and not getting caught was kind of what they already knew how to do. Right. So there was a little bit of kind of this kind of rogue element in that area. And going back and you had like scenes of like people could see the distillery smoke coming up and right. right and under to the Catholics, alcohol wasn't as looked down upon as maybe some of the Protestant uh, cultures. So the Catholics didn't see it as as much of maybe a sin as maybe a Baptist would or something like that. So it is interesting. And, and you said, I think in your book, like they came from Maryland. These Catholics moved mm -hmm. to that area very early on in kind of settlement in the 19th century or even 18th century primary So I, I've done my genealogical work as part of, as, as an ex, sort of an extension of the book reporting. And, um, I'm a Higdon, uh, I'm a, which means I'm a, I'm an English Catholic, uh, who, uh, uh, my family leaves England in this between 1633 and 1650, uh, to the colony of Maryland, uh, along with all the other English Catholics who were getting run out of England, uh, before Oliver Cromwell and then accelerated by Oliver Cromwell and um, in the colony of Maryland until the Revolutionary War. And then as enlisted soldiers in the revolution were offered land grants to uh, settle regions that had been occupied by the British. Um, and so property was seized from the British and then offered to um veterans of the revolutionary war and it was on these land grants that catholic pilgrims catholic settlers came from maryland into uh kentucky before statehood to settle and they settle in central kentucky along the the, the headwaters of the rivers and not the navigable rivers because navigable waterways were still unsafe um from Native American attack. Uh, the Shawnee, uh, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw uh, were not happy with white settlement. And one way to discourage white settlement was uh, nighttime ambush by canoe. And so um, navigable waterways were not safe for settlement. And so the Catholics went up towards the headwaters of the rivers where they still had water, uh, but didn't have to worry about canoe attacks at night. Right. So you had that from the very beginning. And there were also you talk of kind of the Chitlin networks like they're very famous people rolling through their prohibition World War Two. So there kind of was a kind of it reminded me kind of like a little bit of a Wild West kind of frontier element to Lebanon in particular. Right. Yeah, this Chitlin Circuit thing is really remarkable. I mean, growing up, what me and my peers heard from our parents were all the great times that our parents had had when they were teenagers and all those great times were long gone by the time we showed up, all we got were the stories, which is another reason maybe I was obsessed with telling, like getting my head around uh, all these parts of the stories and put it in one place. Cause I just grew up hearing about all these things that I assumed could not possibly have been true. Like it just didn't seem plausible or real. And as a journalist going back and digging in, I was continuously mystified that all this stuff checked out. Um, little Richard plays in my town as early as 1951. He might have, uh, he, he stayed. So 
what made Lebanon this magic spot on the Chitlin circuit uh, was the Chitlin circuit being uh, networks of nightclubs uh, where black performers could perform safely uh, during segregation. They were not allowed to play in major uh, uh, theaters in cities uh, because uh, white ownership and white communities would not allow black performers to play. So they had, they were, they were relegated to play in smaller towns and smaller venues. And Lebanon, Kentucky had all the necessary elements to make this work. The railroad went through that connected Atlanta uh, between Atlanta and Chicago. Uh, uh, alcohol sales uh, existed and there was enough of a black community to support black performers who came through town. So, um, wasn't it called the Green Pass or something? It was that kind of book that they had to oh, use. It wasn't the famous movie. Yeah, the Green Book. Green book um, that's right. Yeah. Now I don't. The Green Book did not come through in my reporting, and I don't know. To my knowledge, there was not a hotel in my town that was um, that catered to black folks. Um, but you had so like Jimi Hendrix there, Tina Turner, yeah. Ike, Tina. So it's pretty remarkable at that time. Like some very very famous names. Uh, I can Tina, yeah, I can Tina more more than once. Uh, Otis Redding played twice. Uh, Jimi Hendrix definitely played. Uh, he was stationed at Fort Campbell when he was in the military. So between leaving Seattle and getting to New York, uh, Jimi Hendrix was stationed in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, and after he left the army, he was based in Nashville doing road trips uh, to play. And that's when he would have played my town. Like his his biography checks out with the period of time where he was supposed to have been there. Um, and Little Richard, the woman who ran the Club Cherry when Little Richard would have played there in the early 50s, uh, her name was Lucille Edlin. And Little Richard doesn't perform Lucille, record Lucille until several years after that. So it's very, very likely that the Lucille in Lucille is from Lebanon, Kentucky. Oh, fascinating. So there really is a colorful history there. And how did that movement take place from uh moonshining to the production of marijuana so in the generation between moonshining and marijuana there was this one family these two brothers that uh paul styles and uh his brother charlie styles and these guys were professional outlaws um informed by their their, their uh the generation before them from prohibition uh, and innovators uh you mentioned uh uh, the smoke from um, coming from a moonshine still. That's how revenuers could identify and break up a still as they would look for the smokestack. Um, and one of the reasons it's speculated that that moonshine is called moonshine is because they ran the still at night to hide the smokestack. Um, but the Styles brothers in the 50s uh, used a new technology to run a large still undetected, and that was with propane. They had a propane tank and heat the fire with smokeless propane. Um, kept the revenuers from finding the location of it. So that was the kind of innovation that was going on then at the time. And then after moonshine faded away, they were stealing appliances by the truckload from the uh, General Electric Appliance Factory here in Louisville um, and making a, making a good living out of that and um, uh, beating the police at their own game left and right. Uh, and in 1971, uh, Kentucky State Police shot and killed Charlie Stiles um, in a nighttime standoff, standoff that many people speculated was a setup. Um, and then sort of immediately after that, 71 was um, sort of understood to be the first year that the, that the cornbread mafia uh, harvested their first crop. Uh, guys had just come back from Vietnam and the Styles brothers um, 
were among the men who had living memory of uh, cultivating hemp in Kentucky during World War II, the Hemp for Victory war effort, where um, American farmers, Kentucky farmers, were tasked with growing hemp for the U.S. Navy um, during World War II. So there was living knowledge agriculturally of growing hemp. Um, it was just a different kind of cannabis. And guys were coming back from Vietnam with seeds from Thailand and everywhere else. Uh, and they, they crossbred them with the local varieties. And growing it at scale right away was what these guys were, were, were good at. So, you know, why grow 100 plants if you could grow five acres? Right. And, and I mean, there was a way to feed it. And you talk about a guy named Mr. X who was never busted. It was kind of like uh, reverse Johnny Appleseed going all over the world to get all these seeds. And these guys were pretty, really sophisticated early growers of hybrids. You go into detail about indica and sativa and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, it seemed before it's time because, yeah, really interesting, like how, how thoughtful they were. They kind of probably had the same kind of mentality as the moonshiners ripping off sugar, uh, what is it, sugar stamp racketeering. They're very, I mean, yeah. they're very clever people starting from 1970s. Would you agree with that? Uh, very clever people, very intelligent. Uh, Johnny Boone, the guy who's on the cover of my book, one of the most naturally intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Um, you know, he never went to college because he got involved in uh, cannabis and and did some time in prison, but he uses prison time um, uh, as an educational opportunity. He read a lot of books in the library. He was just really naturally intelligent. And one of the things he was great at is crossbreeding cannabis strains and getting the results that he wanted out of them. Uh, and you mentioned this Mr. X character. Um, almost every person in the book I name uh, by name on the record uh, because I was able to mostly tell the whole story um, uh, through what was in the public domain through um, uh, court records. I wasn't out there trying to get new people in trouble. I was just trying to tell the story. Um, but part of the story was crucial to understanding it. And that's where the seeds came from. Uh, the knowledge of, of the genetics that made Kentucky cannabis uh, through these cornbread guys so superior. And that was his Mr. X character who was never caught. And so because he wasn't caught and because I was not interested, am not interested in getting new folks in trouble, um, I don't name him in the book. Uh, but uh, he was taken, he was pulled out of school um, at 15, 16 years old, given a passport and sent to Southeast Asia to get seeds. And he, um, in this window between 1970 and 1973, Afghanistan was Western friendly. And uh, this kid finds himself in, in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the market at Chicken Street. And in the Chicken Street market, you can get, could get at the time, uh, seeds, cannabis seeds from virtually everywhere. And what these guys learned that no one knew, and really no one knew, I didn't know until reported for the book and, and, and uh, wrote about it in the book, is that Kentucky shares a latitude line, the 37th parallel, which is about the southern border of Kentucky, um, on the other side of the world crosses the Hindu Kush mountain range in, um, which, uh, is the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan where indica strains of cannabis originated. Oh, so wow. that means that the light cycles in Kentucky are identical to the light cycles in the Hindu Kush. And that light cycles for cannabis are really important. Anyone who's cultivated cannabis knows that the cannabis plant changes from her uh, vegetative, vegetative stage into her flowering stage based on uh, the amount of light that she's receiving. She knows how to 
how to change, uh, you know, her, her life cycle based on what's going on with the light. And so, um, the, Af- uh, the Afghanistan Hindu Kush area is a rugged mountain range, a rocky, uh, territory, like not a lot of soil. Um, but you take those same light cycles and you bring it over to Kentucky and we've got one of the best agricultural microclimates on earth. And it, it's just a magic, um, you know, it's incredible that it, that came all the way across the world at that time. And it is a microclimate, right? There, there's a ridge that kind of shields those cities right there. I, I mean, topography was very unique at that time. I mean, in that area, right? Right. It's the same region where Kentucky bourbon is, is, is made and the same region where Kentucky racehorses are, are, are raised. So the same, um, it's a, it's an ancient, uh, prehistoric ocean bed. Um, and it's, there's now a, a, a large ridgeline, uh, it's called Muldra Hill on the map. Uh, but it's like a 500 foot cliff that runs, uh, where I am in Louisville, uh, South, um, for about 80 miles and, and create is the, is the upper lip for what we refer to as the bluegrass basin. So the bluegrass area of Kentucky is, is a former, uh, prehistoric ocean bed. And that means that the bedrock is limestone from prehistoric uh, organic material, and that limestone filters the water, removes the iron, uh, and replaces it with ca- with calcium, magnesium, and these are the things that make the water sweet in terms of uh, bourbon production. And that's the water that grows the grass that the horses eat, um, and that is what gives uh, thoroughbred racehorses their edge against horses raised other places. Right. It's pretty incredible. So this whole, this whole cornbread mafia starts growing and there's a significant amount. The, the, the weed is weighed by like the, the ton, right? Like I mean, they're putting up hundreds of pounds of marijuana to distribute, correct? Uh, well, that is correct. But, you know, like let's all take it with a grain of salt. Uh, uh, the weight that law enforcement says these guys had versus what they were actually doing is, uh, you know, there, there is a discrepancy. One uh fascinating uh, way to look at this is um, the the farm in Minnesota in 1987 where Johnny Boone and his group got busted. Uh, he had 20 men working for him in Minnesota. Uh, law enforcement said there was 90 tons of marijuana on this farm. And how they get to 90 tons is they weigh one dump truck load. And they take that one dump truck load and they multiply it by 62, which is the number of dump truck loads of cannabis plants they removed from the farm. And so much cannabis remained after 62 dump truck loads that they just took the time 62 number and doubled it and got to 90 tons. Uh, in the sentencing hearing, one of these cops uh, admitted to the judge that the amount of weed in his mind, in his words, was inconceivable. It was just more than they could have imagined. And so 90 tons was just the best way they could quantify it. But it, it, right. was just, it was just a round number they threw against the wall. And it is interesting, like you talked about how they would do certain things to the weed to like color it or change the color or spray Pepsi on it or something. I thought that was pretty funny. Like they were very like uh, really clever about that. And you have like certain words that were specific to marijuana trafficking, rippers, booby traps and all kinds of I mean, it was uh, it was it was very kind of Wild West rural uh you know, really kind of clever kind of things from getting your weed stolen, right? 
Well, that's that's how that's where rippers come in. Rippers are the guys who who uh, instead of growing their own crop, wait for the crop to be almost finished and come in and uh, you know rip out a row and take it for themselves. And if you're caught doing something like that, it's bad news for you um, because there's no uh, there's you know you don't get arrested and go to court for doing something like that. You get um, it's some wild west uh, type of um, justice for that right. sort of business and you had some tough characters you talk about this guy garland russell who i don't think anybody would ever want to run across in any circumstances uh almost like a yeah just really uh yeah unhinged i would say super violent look i i, I really appreciate uh a reader of the book and it's, it's it's apparent that you uh that you really dug into it um this garland russell character is really fascinating and the reason it was important for me to include this guy's story in the book is that um uh, I'm as guilty uh, as anyone of romanticizing these guys' efforts for the most part was relatively nonviolent, uh, but most part and relatively you're doing a lot of work in that sense, right? Because it's essentially an outlaw. It is an outlaw business. It's a criminal enterprise and there's no civil court in outlaw world uh, when there's a monetary disagreement. The only way to solve that is with the violence or the threat of violence. And, um, I wanted to make sure that I kept myself accountable and did not let my readers romanticize these guys too much because there was violence in this, um, in the story and in this world. And Garland Russell was a great character to, um, uh, humanize and exemplify that level of violence. He was uh, a broken person who hurt people. He, um, uh, Johnny Boone in one of my interviews with, with him told me that Garland had, uh, two speeds. He was either, uh, easy going or he was an atomic bomb and there was nothing in between. Uh, if something set him off, he could just as soon kill somebody as eat a sandwich. Uh, and in this, so one of the stories I tell about how he killed some people, uh, it seems clear that he orchestrated a scenario that made him feel justified killing some people because that's what he wanted to do that night. And it's really terrifying how methodical and dispassionate uh, this guy was about uh, going about shooting and killing people. Right. Yeah. Pretty crazy. And also it kind of reminded me, I, I live in California and I've actually run into about four or five people who make their living right around this time of the year, actually the harvest season trimming, and you had a sequence in there about these guys trimming the weed, but it's very similar to California. You have to go somewhere and they won't let you leave until everything's done, but mm -hmm. you get walk out with like 8,000, 10,000 bucks. But uh, so there's a sequence in there with Garland Russell trimming, but it's interesting as it grew, there was always, there was uh, an oversight of the DEA and local, uh, you know, law enforcement was watching over this. But they weren't all above board either, were they? Well, that's the fascinating part about writing a story like this set in, you know, a prohibition period, you know, currently still in the throes of cannabis prohibition, um, is that not all the outlaws are bad and not all the law enforcement is good. And uh, if you enter into a story like this thinking it's all black and white, you miss it. You miss it entirely. Uh, a lot of these people that our government said are bad guys are actually quite good. Uh, and a lot of the law enforcement um, agents, officers involved in prosecuting the, the prohibition um, 
are corrupt or just generally bad. And um, making sure that I was able to, that, that I, you know, kept myself accountable for telling that part of the story was really important to me. Um, knowing that it's not black and white, that we as a society have deputized people to carry out laws to to you know exert state sanctioned violence against people and families and communities um not all these people doing that work are good people right and you talk about these two guys one is uh i think his name was brown and then also oh thornton so um so yeah uh, harold brown andrew thornton um and this is some re-reporting that I do in Cornbread Mafia from another book that was definitely a uh, um, a guiding light for some of this work. Um, uh, the Bluegrass Conspiracy by Sally Denton. Uh, she, in her book, uh, really digs into the Andrew Thornton, Harold Brown uh, connection conspiracy. Uh, but I do some re-reporting of her work uh, as it relates to my characters because there's some intersection. Um Andrew Thornton is a uh, was a uh, Lexington, Kentucky police officer. He was kind of old money in the from the the horse racing set. Um, he was 82nd Airborne, uh, and um, Harold Brown was the head of the DEA office in Louisville um, with a chemistry background. And the two of them appeared to have been involved in a um, very large scale narcotics trafficking operation. Uh, bringing marijuana and then cocaine into Kentucky airports um, from Central and South America um, through the 70s and into the 80s in the time frame that would correspond with what became known as Iran-Contra. Right. And all that stuff in Mena, Arkansas was taking place. So it wasn't just Mena. These guys were involved in Brown didn't end up well. It didn't end up well for him, did it? Well, uh, you know, so so the Barry Seal, Mena, Arkansas uh, story is is kind of an immediate parallel to these guys. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Thornton jumped. I mean, he, he jumped out. He jumped out of an airplane with 15 pounds of cocaine. And it was, whoa, whoa, whoa. OK, I think it was more than that. So, OK, uh, I, I, he the, the, the body of Drew Thornton appears in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, with a parachute that didn't open. He's got uh, he's he's wearing army fatigues and Gucci loafers, and uh, he's got like two duffel bags strapped to him. One has 75 pounds of cocaine in it. The other one has um, like uh, weapons and uh, uh, currency and like gold Krugerrands. And IDs for multiple people, none of whom were him. The only ID on it in his possession that was actually him was a picture ID from the Miami Miami Polo Club, if memory serves. And then there's another duffel bag of cocaine that he threw out of the airplane before he jumped that ends up in a national forest in northern Georgia uh, with a transponder on it that he was planning on going back to get. He's being followed by customs uh, jets when he when he. Uh, uh, crashed or when he jumped from his plane um, and they find uh, officials find this uh, uh, duffel bag in the forest in Georgia, but someone else has found it first. A large black bear has gotten into the cocaine and suffered a heart attack and died nearby. It's just an incredible story, but there's so many little vignettes and stories particular to this area, fighting, 
uh, ripping, you know, you really capture so many of those stories in the book, but it doesn't stay in Kentucky, right? They move to, it becomes a broader operation outside of that state, correct? Correct. So they're essentially responding to law enforcement. Um, in the summer of 1980, Kentucky State Police fly their first helicopter mission in pursuit of cannabis eradication and suppression. The first place they fly is Marion County, Lebanon, uh, my hometown. Uh, summer of 1980, I was uh, uh, four years old, or not yet four. Um, and in one weekend, they found 45 acres of marijuana. Um, and so the growers, in response, kept growing, but not there. So they grew other parts of Kentucky, and then the helicopters follow them there, and then they go to another state, and then another state, and then another another state. And so by the time they catch them, they, they've caught them in 10 Midwestern states, um, uh, Michigan, Missouri, um, Nebraska, Minnesota, um, they're Kansas, they're, they're buying networks of farms, um, and in towns with populations and, you know, like a couple of hundred people and they're like not even taking deep possessions of the farm. They're, they're, they're buying them on some sort of contractual basis and not executing the contract. So eventually they won't be the owners of those farms, but they're still growing on them. It's, you know, very kind of ripping and running, but all they're looking for is land to grow where the helicopters aren't yet. Right. So they're evading the cops the whole time. And it just goes, and then on the, if you're on YouTube, you can see this guy, Johnny Boone, and he kind of starts off very early in the book and runs through kind of the rest of the book. Can you talk about him as a character and your relationship with him? Sure. So this, this guy, Johnny Boone was kind of, um, in my mind, the, the Captain Ahab of this operation, like um, not necessarily like the only um leader of the group, but, but he, he held a place of folklore hero in my community growing up, like this guy and what he did and uh, how he got caught. And the fact that he uh, often uh, more than one occasion sacrificed himself so that his co uh, his compatriots would get um, either less of a sentence or a, or a fighting chance at, at uh, getting away. Um, I mean, he was just, really perceived as a, as a real man and not just in terms of his skill as a cultivator, uh, and a, and a geneticist. Um, but just like on a deeply human level, like uh, a real Robin hood type who was generous and, um, uh, self-sacrificing, um, but also very private and, you know, uh, perceived as someone not to, not to mess with. Um, and so it's not something that you, someone you could just go knock on a front door to say hello to. Um, it took some time to work mutual acquaintances to uh, uh, have conversations with him where we could negotiate um, what I was doing, uh, what I wanted to do, what I wanted from him, and how he could help. Um, that took some time, but I got him to agree to allow me to uh, do open records requests, uh, Freedom Information Act requests. Uh, from the DEA and FBI on his behalf uh, on the condition that he uh, saw the documents before I did, uh, which was an easy thing to agree to because um, I'm essentially doing these searches on his behalf anyway. So it's easy for me to say like, you know, here, open the envelope. Um, 
And then I'd come back a couple of days later and he'd tell me what, what we had. So we got hundreds and hundreds of pages back, not just on him, but on a number of people. Uh, and he helped me kind of read through and understand and decipher uh, a lot of these internal documents. Um, and then those documents provided a backbone uh, and a timeline that his memory we were able to overlay on. Uh, he didn't give me anything that I didn't have a piece of. Like he wasn't volunteering information or stories to me at all. Uh, it was only, uh, I've got these documents. Can you help me understand them? Or I know this happened. What's your side of it? And he would tell me, uh, his version of a story, um, uh, when I had a piece of it. And so it was, you know, a, um, a professional relationship where, uh, he helped me understand what I had, a, what I had a hold on, uh, without giving me more than he didn't want to give me. Right. So you were talking with this guy. This is the guy who had Omerta tattooed on his back, right? Was Correct. Really? Correct. And so that relationship, <clears throat> you talk about a lot of that stuff in later parts of the book, but also got you kind of uh, under the radar of the government, correct? Uh, I had my run-ins with the government, yeah. Um, so he gets. I mean, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. No, 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 shit, no, shit. I'll talk okay. about it. Like it's, okay. you know, like it happened. Like um, I got pulled into my own story. It was really weird. Um, but uh, to circle back first uh, to talk about uh, Johnny's back tattoo, uh, he gets Omerita tattooed on his back when he's, I believe, um, at uh, Terre Haute Maximum Security uh, in Indiana. I mean, he's a you know a cannabis cultivator with without a violent record, uh, but because he wouldn't talk and because no one around him talked, uh, the Bureau of Prisons sent him to the worst prison in the federal system. Uh, Terre Haute, uh, his nickname was Terror Hut, might still be. Um, it's the only place, it was the place where at least, uh, then I don't know if now is the only place where there's a federal death row, um, uh, commonly understood to be a gladiator school. Like if you didn't go there and weren't ready to, um, uh, fight for your life, you could lose your own. It was uh, a dangerous place. And he was there because he wouldn't talk. Um, and so when he met Italians and Sicilians who were also incarcerated at Terre Haute, that's when he understood or learned about Omerita as a concept, really not before. Uh, and, and it resonated so thoroughly with him that he got the tattoo. Um, uh, Omerita doesn't have any um, uh, place in uh, the natural history of our community before um, Johnny learns about, understands it from his Sicilian compatriots um, in, in federal maximum security prison. Uh, if so, if, if, if that makes sense, no, it does hundred um, percent. I mean, yeah, make, <clears throat> but you're very, they're almost the Sicilians are a tight knit community and that little area there in Kentucky is a tight knit community. So well, I, you know, know, I'll, I'll tell you this, the reason we know about Goodfellas is because Henry Hill was a rat, right? Like what's, what's fascinating is these cornbread guys were tighter uh, than any Sicilian group ever was because the only way we know about these guys is that I was able to um, get just enough to tell the story in a cause and effect re relationship and, and, and get this into a book. Um, but there were, there are no rats here. Um, and talking to Sicilians and, and, and Italians in Brooklyn and talking to retired NYPD detectives, as I've done, uh, one thing that continually strikes them as, as fascinating and, and respectful is that 70 guys and, and no talking is a, is a big number. It's a big number for no rats. Right, um, 
Um, and then it's, and then, so that goes right into your other question about me having my own run in with a law, uh, which is I'm reporting this book. I'm working on a book. And in the course of working on this book, I lost my contract with my publisher um, through no fault of my own. My editor left to become an agent, and I had a project that was then an orphan, and in publishing, orphans get killed. That's just the nature of the publishing business. No one wants another project that doesn't belong to them. And so uh, in early 2008, my project died. I had to leave Kentucky, move back to New York to try to hustle something up, and then that summer... Uh, two things happen. One, Johnny gets caught again, growing again, and goes on the run because that's essentially his third federal strike, and he's risks facing life in prison without parole for the third strike violation. So instead of surrendering himself to a death sentence, he plays catch me if you can, and they can't catch him. He's gone. He's a ghost. He's gone forever um, or gone for almost a decade. Uh, and then while I'm in New York that summer, Lehman Brothers collapses. Uh, the um, um, 2008 financial, financial crisis yeah. happens. Uh, Amazon takes over the publishing industry and shopping around a book that's been canceled by another publisher uh, in that environment in the marketplace is not a, a successful venture for me. I have to go back home um, after a year in New York and um, uh, kind of start over. Um, and as part of that, um, this this photograph on the cover of the book is a photograph that I took of Johnny Boone and I made one set of prints of those, of those photographs and I gave them to Johnny Boone. And when federal agents raided his house after he went a fugitive, they got these photographs. They knew that I had taken them and they were using them as part of the, have you seen this man package with media companies? And I was having to call TV stations and say, Hey, you're using my photographs without my permission. You're violating my copyright. I want you to stop doing that. Um, and it was really frustrating and time consuming and um, uh, stress inducing to do all that. So I contacted the U.S. Marshal Service and I was like, look, I'm Jim Higdon. You know who I am. I've taken these pictures. You know the pictures. You don't need those pictures. You've got a mugshot of this guy. Stop using my pictures. Um, and the thanks I got for that phone call was that the U.S. Marshal Service subpoenaed me to a federal grand jury in February of 2009 at the beginning of the Obama administration. So I'm in Brooklyn, minding my own business, have to fly home to Kentucky, uh, get a lawyer, and um, risk 18 months in federal court for or federal prison um, for not talking. So this um, whole culture and story that I've been working on about these guys who didn't talk because they're from this culture that didn't talk because they were from the same people that I am from, because we didn't talk. Um, I'm forced into this situation where the federal government wants me to talk. And I know from my upbringing and my reporting that that's not something I can do. So I'm prepared to... So the way it works on a federal grand jury proceeding, if you don't want to talk, is um, you go in, they ask you questions, you don't answer. They put you before a judge. The judge grants you immunity. And if you don't talk after you're granted immunity, then you're held in contempt. And then that contempt charge is 18 months. So um, I was prepared to do the 18 months. I like woke up that morning and with a Sharpie wrote my attorney's phone number on my arm um, because I was going to go into jail that day. And it was only after convincing uh, 
the uh, assistant U.S. attorney in charge of the case that I was a member of the news media and afforded certain protections that the Justice Department hadn't granted me, um, that I was able to get out of it like less than an hour before I was scheduled to appear. Wow. That must have been pretty nerve wracking. I mean, it's a great book. You've really well written. I'm glad you published it. It has excellent reviews. It's very thorough. I mean, you have just so many stories in there. It's very, it's just like all, like I said, so many different narratives and the pro progression really from the original inhabitants of that area all the way to the present. It's really a great kind of historical sweep to it. So kudos to you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. And you also kind of took your knowledge or what you learned and put in the book, but also kind of uh, started a business as well. Can you talk about that? Happy to. And thank you. Um, so the success of the book, like the book for, for a nonfiction book for a first time author about something that no one had heard of before was incredible, is incredibly successful. Like you said, the, my Amazon page, uh, just like, you know, I don't check it as much anymore as I used to, but it's just delightful, uh, to go in there and see, uh, people's responses to the book. Uh, I like to sort them by one star, read my one star reviews. I encourage anyone uh, who's interested to read my, uh, the, the reviews who really didn't like it because I think those are my favorite ones. Um, uh, but I, I was able to parlay uh, the work and the success of the book into a journalism career. Um, uh, I covered cannabis policy at a pretty high, at a very high level um, for outlets like Politico uh, also places like Thrillist and Al Jazeera um, and, when news broke in Kentucky, I was the stringer for the Washington Post. Uh, uh, the Kim Davis gay marriage fiasco from 2015. I uh, was uh, uh, the front person for the Washington Post for that whole story. I uh, got a number of uh, A1 bylines for the Washington Post um, uh, for that reporting and other reporting in Kentucky. Uh, and in the course of it in 2018, I was reporting on the farm bill about to get passed that was going to legalize hemp for good and CBD products along with it. And in the course of that reporting, realized that there was no cannabis company, no CBD company invested in this space that understood Kentucky's hemp history, understood the heritage that Kentucky uh, had with this plant. Um, and, and, no one was really leaning into uh, this idea that Kentucky was superior at growing hemp uh, for a number of reasons and, and for, you know, centuries. And it was really frustrating to me, but I found it as an opportunity to position a brand in the market that, that um, was, uh, you know, a top shelf brand that understood its history, that understood where we came from uh, and present that nationally into the world. Um, and it just so happened that my business partner is my first cousin, uh, Eric Zipperly. He's an e-commerce marketing genius. And I came with the knowledge of um, the cannabis industry and the hemp industry in Kentucky and regulatory compliance and had a good solid Rolodex of uh, uh, media contacts in the world uh, based on my journalism background. And uh, we went to work. That was in 2019. So we've been at it for almost three years and we're... Uh, one of the only USDA certified organic uh, hemp derived CBD companies in America. Uh, we're really leaning into our THC content. So um, uh, hemp brands, hemp companies are only allowed to use products that have uh, to offer products that have less than 0.3% THC, uh, which in the grand scheme of things is not a lot, uh, but in individual serving sizes, um, 
it's not nothing. Uh, we've got multiple products with uh, two milligrams of Delta 9 THC uh, on the screen right there. The, uh, the full spectrum CBD gummies, uh, each of those extra strength gummies have 50 milligrams of CBD and two milligrams of THC per gummy. Um, that's more THC than almost all the other CBD companies offer because most CBD companies are running away from THC. Uh, but we're legally allowed to offer a certain amount of THC in a product and cornbread based on our, our heritage and our history. Uh, we're, we lean into that. And, uh, and, and the fact that they're USDA certified organic means it's something that you can't find in any dispensary in any legal state because, uh, state legal cannabis is not, doesn't have access to the USDA organic seal. And so we're, um, we're operating at a, at a very high standard, ensuring our supply chain is compliant with USDA certified organic standards, uh, providing certified organic THC and CBD products to everywhere the U.S. Postal Service ships, all 50 states, all U.S. territories, uh, Guam to Puerto Rico. It says here you buy two, you get one free. And the website is cornbreadhemp.com, correct? Yes, you got it. Cornbreadhemp.com. Uh, we're running all kinds of great promotions uh, now through the holiday season. Uh, and um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cornbreadhemp. And, you know, it's a, um, it's a great, it's a great way to meet people. We're, we're really excited about where we are in the marketplace. Great. And again, the title of this book is the cornbread mafia, a homegrown syndicates code of silence and the biggest marijuana bust in American history. There's a lot more to this book. We didn't cover the whole thing. I highly suggest people go check it out on Amazon. Is Amazon the best place to buy it or do you recommend Amazon? It? Well, uh, everyone should go talk to their local bookseller. Uh, you know, booksellers had a tough time during the pandemic. You should go say hi, uh, ask for a copy of Cornbread Mafia. But uh, if you're still at home and shopping from home, it's available on Amazon. Go get it. Awesome. And again, the author's name is James Higdon and the website is cornbreadheb.com. That'll be in the show notes. You guys can check that out. But uh, James Higdon, thank you so much. Great interview. Appreciate it. Hey. Hey, William, really appreciate it. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for the invite. Cool. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Take care. Have a great weekend. Yeah, cheers.